Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. I'm your host, Michelle McAloon, and this is an Archangel Media production. I'm so very honored to welcome Mr. George Weigel, a Catholic theologian, an author par excellence, and one of America's leading Catholic and public intellectuals. He has personally interviewed and written about the last three popes. Mr. Weigel is perhaps best known for his widely translated and internationally acclaimed two-volume biography of Pope St. John Paul II and its sequel, The End in the Beginning. He is here with us today to speak about one of his recent books, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church and Mission, published by Ignatius Press. I can't think of a better person today in the Universal Church to write about the qualifications that the next Pope will need to lead the church in the 21st century. Welcome, Mr. Weigel. Thanks, Michelle. Good to be with you. Uh, it's, it's more than an honor, sir. Your book, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church and Mission, is an extremely important book that should be read by every seminarian, priest, deacon, bishop, and layperson, not just because of the qualifications needed by a future pope, but the absolute succinct articulation that describes the mission of the church. Mr. Weigel, you've been doing this for 40 years. What is the mission of the church today? The mission of the church, Michelle, is the same as it has been since the Lord addressed the apostolic band at the end of St. Matthew's gospel. Uh, The mission of the church is to convert the world to offer the world uh, and the people of the world friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ and incorporation into his body, uh, the church, because that, we believe, is what leads to human happiness, human fulfillment, human flourishing, social solidarity, uh, and freedom nobly lived. This is a mission for everyone in the church. And while this book is focused through the prism of that unique office, the papacy, it's really a book about all of us. It's a book about every Catholic's responsibility to be a missionary disciple. And of course, the book explores how uh, the papacy can uh, foster that missionary vocation that each of us received on the day of our baptism. Okay, the next pope is going into a very different church, a different church as far as we know historically. We've gone through five epochal periods of time, and you say now that we are in the apostolic time of the church, and that this new pope, whoever he may be, will be going into this period of time where we are now. Can you briefly explain what you mean by the apostolic time of the church? Well, this is a new apostolic era. I mean, the church obviously begins in an apostolic moment when everyone in the church understood what I just said, that the church is for mission and evangelization. Uh, That early church converted what scholars today believe to be perhaps as much as a half of the Mediterranean world in two and a half centuries, which is pretty good work for uh, a ragtag bunch of nobodies coming out of the east end of nowhere uh, <laughs> in, in 250 years. But our times are are similar to that in that we're no longer living in the era of Christendom. And by Christendom, I don't just mean 
you know, the kind of images that that come up of a close relationship between church and state or, you know, medieval Christendom, uh, things like that. Christendom lasted somewhat longer than, than political Christendom, which was pretty much ended by the French Revolution and all that followed from that. But cultural Christendom, a cultural circumstance in the Western world in which the the cultural air we breathed helped transmit the faith lasted a while longer. That's now over too. The cultural air we breathe is not neutral about biblical faith. Uh, it's hostile to it. Uh, we've just had uh, the U.S. House of Representatives pass something called the Equality Act. The Equality Act in effect, criminalizes the biblical view of the human person, male and female, he created them, by declaring it the civil rights policy of the United States, that anyone, no matter what their uh, biological sex, can declare themselves to be any gender that they wish to be. Now, this is both ridiculous scientifically, it's harmful humanly, because it confirms confusions rather than than helping distressed people. But as I say, it criminalizes the biblical view of, of the human person and, and the Catholic view of the human person. So we're in a very different situation. This is no longer Christendom. So if the church is going to uh, be that agent of healing, of redemption in this new situation, uh, everyone in the church must understand that missionary discipleship is the vocation of each of us, and the leadership of the church must understand that its task is to empower uh, others for uh, the people of the church, for missionary discipleship. That's the mission statement, if, if you will. And I think it's confirmed by looking around the world church today. I mean, there are a lot of places in the world church that are in trouble. Quebec, which used to be the most intensely Catholic part of North America, is now the most religiously arid place between the North Pole and Tierra del Fuego. I mean, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a wasteland religiously. Uh, Germany. My hometown right now, yes. Which played such a large role in 19th and 20th century uh, Catholicism is now in its formal institutions in something like a state of apostasy, uh, where uh, fundamental truths of Catholic faith are being denied by this so-called synodal way through which the German church proposes to create what I've been calling brave new Catholicism, uh, which is not pretty picture. On the other hand, there are parts of the world church that are lively, vibrant, mission-oriented, evangelically fervent, uh, and evangelically successful. There's been an enormous growth of Catholic faith in sub-Saharan Africa over the past two generations. And even in North America, where we're tending to focus on the problems of the church, abuse crises, financial scandals, whatever— there is a lot of good news. There are lively parishes. There are seminaries that are very different than they were 25 or 30 years ago. 
there are younger clergy who understand that their task is the empowerment of the people of the church for mission. There are small Catholic liberal arts colleges and universities that are preparing what may be the saviors of Western civilization. Oh, absolutely. Those are really the unsung heroes right now. Yeah. There are religious orders of men and women that are taking the consecrated life uh, seriously and uh, renewing uh, what has always been understood to be the kind of spiritual reactor core of the church since the days of St. Benedict. So it all comes down to understanding that, first of all, uh, missionary discipleship is the way forward. And secondly, that missionary discipleship only gets traction when what's being offered is what I call in this book all-in Catholicism, right? as distinguished from what I call in the book Catholic light, which inevitably, if one looks at Germany or Quebec, Ireland, Catholic light, pardon me, Coca-Cola company, Catholic mm-hmm. light inevitably leads to Catholic zero. So those are some of the basic themes uh, of this book. And uh, they're not ideologically or philosophically derived. This is empirical reality. The church lives where the church is being itself, being this evangelical community of missionary disciples. And the church dies when it keeps trying to make this failed project of Catholic light work. Absolutely. So the next man that will be Pope, and it'll be sooner than later, I believe Pope Francis now is Mid eighties, if I'm, and I'm probably being generous with that one. If he's oh, he's, 80, he's eighty four, he's eighty four. Okay, well that's sort of mid eighties. All right. So the next pope that will come along, as you point out, will probably be a have been a teenager at least during Vatican II. Maybe not even have been alive during Vatican II in an era that has become much more virulently secular. Can a pope, an effective pope? lead this huge mass of 1.1 billion humanity toward a Christ-centric mission. And you give some great examples of where a pope can lead. But what can one man really do, if I have to answer some of my secular brothers and sisters? Well, your secular friends, and indeed your Catholic friends, as well as your Christian friends of other communions and your Jewish friends can simply look at the example of John Paul II, where a vibrant, confident Catholicism deeply embedded in the tradition of the church, but fully conscious of modern culture and thought, bent the curve of history in a more humane direction. Uh, When I first proposed in 1992 in the book, The Final Revolution, that John Paul II had been the pivotal figure in the collapse of European communism, lots of eyebrows were raised. Any serious historian of the Cold War, uh, beginning with John Lewis Gaddis at Yale, perhaps the premier American historian of the Cold War, now accepts that as a given. Moreover, and perhaps even more importantly, For our conversation today, John Paul II revitalized the church. Uh, He gave the church back a sense of the excitement of Christian orthodoxy, the adventure 
of evangelization. It was he who coined the phrase, the new evangelization, to describe this epoch into which we're moving in the history of the church. So yeah, there there are examples uh, within living memory of one man embodying the beauty of Christian faith and the excitement of Christian faith and energizing others for mission. All of those people we talked about a moment ago, whether they're these vibrant young local churches in Africa or these living parts of the church in in North America, virtually without exception, say, we are following the lead of John Paul II. So the example is uh, there. While he's not replicable, I mean, he had a unique personal experience throughout the 20th century. That sense of a vibrant faith, a compelling presentation of the faith is not beyond uh, the reach of the church today. Where the church really needs to step in today, and you actually referred to this sort of during the equality or talking about the Equality Act, is our understanding of the human person. And actually, in our understanding of the Trinity came out of our understanding of what it is to be a human person. And here we are again, as you say, in the third decade of the 21st century, that this question is now before us. And the only answer that makes any kind of sense is a Christ-centric answer in understanding what is the human being. How can a pope lead us to a renewed understanding or not not lead us personally, but lead a church so that they understand themselves so that we can evangelize this understanding of the human person? We're so fragilized right now. Yeah, there's an awful lot of confusion uh, surrounding us and uh, frankly, confused notions of compassion in which it's thought that the compassionate thing to do is to simply accept what someone says they are and and leave them alone. That's not the Lord's view of compassion as the dialogue with the Samaritan woman uh, at the well that we read on the third Sunday of Lent every third year and every week during the third third week of Lent every year uh, reminds us. Second Vatican Council said that it's only in the mystery of the incarnate word that the truth of the human person comes fully to light. That proclamation has to be at the center of the church's uh, mission. Jesus Christ, as John Paul II would say in many variations on one theme, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. And therefore, we are not preaching social work. We engage in social work, but we're not preaching social work. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ as the answer to the question of that is every human life. Now, that's not an easy proclamation. Because as we'll be reminded uh, in a few weeks, the cross and Easter are very much part of the proclamation. And you don't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. Uh, There's no detour around Good Friday to uh, Easter. Uh, On the other hand, the world has been reminded by this pandemic of the fragility of the human condition that suffering uh, is built into the human condition. Uh, And the church needs to lift up 
the ancient Christian truth that suffering conformed to the cross leads to Easter, that suffering is not simply irrational, that suffering identified with Christ's suffering becomes redemptive suffering. So there's a lot uh, that's very countercultural in this, as, as we know, uh, but that, that's what we've got to offer others, and we should offer it openly and without apology. How can our mission statement, our Christ-centered mission statement, help us regain the moral authority that we need to have in society after just the horrendous years, the past 20 years of uh, the sex abuse scandals, the Vatican? How do we reestablish a trust with a population that is so need in of evangelization at this point in time? I would think the next Pope, that would be a huge challenge to take that one on. Well, in the United States, we need to stop following the media narrative and make it clear by demonstration that the Catholic Church in the United States is probably the safest environment for young people in the country. We had real problems here, particularly in the late 1970s and early 1980s. We have addressed those problems, not often with full wisdom, but we have addressed them. And the notion that the Catholic Church in the United States is an ongoing arena of child rape is simply nonsense. In fact, society as a whole, public schools, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, could learn something from us about safe environments. So we need, we need to tell our story accurately. Secondly, we need full transparency about all of these problems. The crisis was magnified by the attempt to bury it. Uh, and that holds for financial accountability in the church as well as uh, accountability for the behavior of of the people of of the church. The third thing we need to recognize is that the incidence of clerical sexual abuse spiked dramatically when doctrinal uh, discipline broke down in the church. There was a huge spike in the incidence of these cases when uh, the signal was sent to clergy and religious, that you don't really have to take the church's teaching seriously. This, of course, was in the wake of Humanae Vitae in 1968 right. and the huge uh, controversy that followed in the wake of, of that encyclical. So that needs to be uh, wrestled with as well. As to financial accountability in the Vatican, the only answer to that is a thorough house cleaning and a change of institutional culture. I've been writing this for the better part of 15 years. Uh, I feel unfortunately vindicated in what I've been uh, saying. We need to instate, to instantiate, excuse me, and frankly, an Anglo-Saxon culture of legal and financial responsibility in what is frankly an Italianate culture Interesting, uh, a, yeah. <laughs> a wink and nod and familial. Uh, it's far more familial and tribal than institutional and responsible. Uh, I think some progress has been made on this, but more progress uh, needs to be made. The next pope is really going to have to complete 
the work of his immediate predecessors in cleaning the stables in Rome. Right. And Pope Francis actually, he's actually passed some impressive legislation to try to deal with this. Now, whether it's, you know, whether he's had the discipline to actually apply it or how it has come out, that may be another question. But it looks like he's at least understands the direction that it needs to go. It seems like to me that one of the biggest things for reform in the church is to do away with secrecy. And like you said, is that open transparency. It has to happen for us to trust again. Can I make just one point on that since I make sure. the book the next pope? I, I think you're right that a lot of the the legal architecture has been has put in place. The legal scaffolding has been put in place. But in the church, as in every human institution, personnel is policy. And if you don't have the right people working within that scaffolding, you're going to have the same old problems. A second point that needs to be made in terms of financial responsibility in the church is that there is absolutely nothing in the sacrament of holy orders that confers or guarantees financial understanding or financial probity. Lay people have got to be used, deployed, employed more comprehensively in managing the finances of the church, whether that's at the parish level, the diocesan level, or the level of the universal church in Rome. Now, this is a church that, by the will of Christ, is governed by men in holy orders. There's no argument about that. They're the ultimate responsibility. But there is absolutely no reason why the Vatican's finances should be primarily in the hands of clergy, And in fact, the part of the Vatican financial apparatus that has been most cleaned up and is functioning best is the Vatican Bank, which is led by a layman who happens to be a friend of mine, a Belgian lawyer and financier named Jean-Baptiste de Franceau, who's done a very, very fine job of cleaning the stables uh, there with with the support of uh, Pope Francis. And while he was there... Cardinal Pell. But what you're talking about, Mr. Weigel, is really hitting upon a nerve, is that the hierarchy has got to be willing to cooperate with the laity to bring on very, very competent people for us to truly have reform. And hopefully, the a man that will become the new pope has dealt extensively with lay people and understands that there is a competency that the lay people can bring that maybe the hierarchy does not have in the mundane task of running a human institution. That would certainly be on my... Uh tick the boxes list of qualities uh, desirable in any uh, person in a serious leadership position in the church, whether that's a local bishop or the bishop of Rome. Leadership in the church is leadership. I mean, leaders have to lead, but it's also a leadership of empowerment, empowering both clergy and laity to live out their distinctive vocations in such a way that the good of the whole body of the church is uh, advanced. And as we move into this church of the new evangelization, this church of missionary discipleship, it's clear to me that 
as the Second Vatican Council taught, the primary function of bishops is teaching. It's proclamation. It's catechesis. I have lots of friends who are bishops. I have told uh, for the past 15 years, those of my friends appointed to the episcopate, if you find yourself spending more than 40% of your time in meetings, you're doing something wrong. And you need to look at your schedule again and reconfigure it so that you are not primarily an office. There are parts of your job that you can't delegate to others. And you are the bottom line, whether it's financial or administrative or whatever. But you need to learn the art of, of delegation and team building. One of the reasons why Archbishop Charles Chaput recently Uh, retired as the Archbishop of Philadelphia after being the Archbishop of Denver and the Bishop of Rapid City was, in my judgment, the most successful Catholic bishop in the Anglosphere, was because he built teams around him, whether in rural Rapid City, South Dakota, or highly secularized Denver, or, you know, old-fashioned Catholic Philadelphia. He was a team builder and an empower, uh, someone who empowered people around him to do their jobs. He was the, the center uh, of a wheel, uh, out, and out of that center, there were many spokes, and therefore, you know, the wheel ran pretty well. That's a model that others need to learn. Oh, absolutely. But you, you hit upon something about leadership, and leadership is accepting all responsibility but actually knowing how to empower good people and motivate good people. And whether it's civilian industry or the Catholic Church, we need leadership. That is so important. Actually, your book, The Next Pope, is actually a great leadership manual for how, how to lead, how to, how to work with people, how to empower people. It is it just such a good book in putting together the mission statement of the church and how to carry out the mission statement. So it's not just about who's going to be the next Pope, because you know what? A priest sitting in the pew right now or on the altar, he could be the next Pope. So it's not too early for him to start thinking and inculcating some of these things that you are professing in your book. Mr. Weigel, where can we get your book? Where can I recommend to the audience to buy your book? The next Pope uh, can be acquired directly from Ignatius Press, uh, www.ignatius.com. Uh, I haven't been canceled on Amazon or Barnes. Okay, good. <laughs> so you can find uh, the book, the online places. Catholic bookstores, local Catholic bookstores have taken a big hit uh, during the pandemic. If people can support their local Catholic bookstore, that's a that's a good thing to do. Uh, let me uh, put in another ad quickly, and that is for the the follow-up book to this, which is quite different. It's called Not Forgotten. It's a portrait of 68 fascinating personalities that I've known or have come to admire. And uh, it speaks to this question of leadership, too, because the people I write about in this uh, form of elegies for people who have gone uh, through the valley of the shadow of death is another exercise in in leadership uh, 
identifying leadership qualities. So book real quickly to my audience. It's a very charming book and it's a real good time capsule book too. I really, really enjoyed reading it, especially the different characters that you've run across in your life. So Mitch Weigel, you've done much for us all. You've done much for the church and we pray for your continued health and your continued success. God bless. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.